Uh, last week, somebody asked me what I mean by the word God, which you might think should be like an easy question for a pastor, or not, I don't know. Um, but before I tell you my answer in response to that last week, I'm curious, what's yours? Anyone? I know it's kind of unfair to just fling that at you, right? Yeah. Great mystery. Great mystery. Yeah. What else? Love. Sorry again? Love. Love. Jesus. Fruit of the Spirit. The The grounding of everything. Anybody else? Sorry? All encompassing. Yeah. Nice. Those are good ones, you guys. Yeah. One more time. Force. Or source. Source. The I am. It's a lot of good theology in the room. Uh, in the words that have been making sense to me lately in response to that have been to describe God as the loving mystery at the center of reality. And part of what I mean by that is that there's something within and beyond everything that we bump into in the world, right? That whether you like scale down to the micro and you think about the atoms and the molecules that make up our bodies and the world that we touch around us, or whether you kind of go to the the big stuff like bodies and lives and land and stories, that there's something within all of that and beyond all of that. And that whatever that mystery is, it is loving, it is revealed as love, and it keeps giving itself to us and it keeps giving us our lives in every moment. And the other thing that uh, I I, I wouldn't be authentic to talk about that word without saying that it's been my experience of Jesus that has really made that that mystery real to me, especially when I talk about love being at the heart of that mystery. And um, quite specifically in Jesus, like a lot of what I've bumped into and encountered there is the way that Jesus shows up in places like Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is one of those gospel biographies about Jesus, the things that he did and said. And that's where we've been uh, since September for the most part, just trying to like work slowly with the things that Jesus tells us and try to understand what they mean for us. And the thing that I hope we are hearing loud and clear as we work through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is that it starts with Jesus saying, when he, when he says that poverty within you, the poor in spirit, when he says the things that you have lost, when he talks about those who mourn, when he says those of you who perhaps can't take for yourselves the things that you need, when he speaks to the meek, when he speaks of those who hunger and thirst for justice because you have suffered injustice, like what I take from that is, is Jesus saying that there's nothing about you or the things that have happened to you that can render you ineligible for God to give God's life to you because God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. And then our reading is that everything he says after that are snapshots, possibilities, warnings, invitations about what that life looks like when God lives God's life through us. And that's really important for us because if we're going to keep going through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and hear these teachings, we've got to remember this isn't just like a new rule, like a new law, like a new like, all right, well, here's the standard, deal with it. Like, that's not how this begins. If we remember that it begins with Jesus saying, God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you, then everything that follows are the kind of possibilities created by people who don't earn it or fight for it or climb to the top of it on our own, but who just keep learning how to dance with it, how to open ourselves to it, how to surrender to it, and let that life get lived through us. With that baseline, uh, this new year, we're going to keep going and we're going to start in chapter 6. You guys ready for some more Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, cool. All right, this is Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. 
Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. In a verse that makes preachers everywhere tremble. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Well, let's just do some observations. First of all, if you've read Matthew 5, which is what we were working through in the fall before Advent, um, you might observe what feels like a pretty intense contradiction between something Jesus says in Matthew 5 and something Jesus says in Matthew 6. And I think it's always helpful to pay attention to places in the text that feel like a rub or a contradiction because that's often where the most interesting stuff is happening. Let me go back to Matthew 5 to the place that might feel like it stands in total uh, contention with what Jesus said in chapter 6. This is Matthew 5 verse 14. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. He goes on and says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Is anybody else confused? It's like, Jesus, which way is it, right? Let me, let me be more pointed about the contradiction here. So let me put these two verses on the screen. In Matthew 6, he gives this instruction we just heard, So that your giving may be in secret. In Matthew 5, he says, I want to make sure that they may see your good deeds. What are you going to do with that? Well, I think, uh, according to at least one commentator, the secret here might have to do with a little bit of Greek grammar, which I know you were all hoping we would get into today. I've italicized the pronoun here, your, so that your giving may be in secret and that they may see your good deeds. This is one of those places where translation gets a little bit messy because in formal modern English, we only have one second-person pro, second pronoun for both the singular and the plural. So if I want to speak to you as an individual, I'm going to call you you, right? And if I want to speak to you as a group, I'm going to call you you, unless I move out of, like, formal English into sort of more regional dialects. I could be like, use guys, right, or y'all to speak to the plural you, but in formal English, which tends to be the kind of English that, like, stuffy pants academic translators like to use for these verses— we have you and you, or in this case, your and your. But let me uh, peel back a layer and show you the Greek for the way that your shows up. Next slide. So now I've just swapped out the English for the Greek for that word your, and you'll notice, even if you can't read Greek, those are two completely different words. So in Matthew 6, when he's talking about giving in secret, the word here is su, and that essentially is the, is the singular pronoun. You, as an individual person, do your giving in secret. In chapter 5, where he said, let everybody see the good deeds, that like, God may be glorified, he's using a different pronoun. Uh, haimon or haimon or, or haimon. This is the plural. Like a good way of translating Matthew five sixteen might be that they may see y'all's good deeds. That's really hard for me to say. My family moved to Tennessee for a year and a half when I was in middle school. I still have trauma related to that experience. <laughs> and those little linguistic cues are hard for me. <laughs> but it might be the case, according to at least one commentator, that Jesus is saying between these two statements um, that the work we do together is the better witness to the life of God in the world. That the work we do together collectively as a community, as a family, the things that we do collectively are a better witness to God in the world. And if that's the case, he might be saying that the, the virtuous things that we do individually 
though they're good to do, they're kind of fraught because we are complicated people. I'm going to get further into that, but for a second I do want to hang out on how the good that we do together is a better witness. And I want to, frankly, just use it as a moment to celebrate and say thanks for, like, one good thing that we've been able to do together most recently, which has to do with our Christmas offering. And so maybe you've already seen this on the email newsletter, but this is our first Sunday back together. And I'm really grateful and really proud to celebrate the fact that with a Christmas offering goal of 75000 uh, we as a community actually gave 82000 to that goal. And perhaps even more exciting to me than the dollar amount is that 90 different individuals and families gave to that uh, objective. Because this is fully funded, it means we get to do everything that we said we were going to do to the full tilt. So it means that with that money, uh, we're going to support the Book of Belonging, which is a new project taking stories from the Bible and translating them and illustrating them for kids in a way that makes sure that every kind of kid understands that these stories are for them too, rather than leaving the girls out or kids of color out or other people who might feel alienated by the ways that kids' storybooks often tell the Bible story. So we get to support the Book of Belonging. Uh, Thanks to your generosity, we were able to do a little end-of-year generosity to the staff to say thanks to the staff team for the work they've done. Uh, It means in needs in our city, we get to support neighbor to neighbor. If you were here in December, you might have heard me talk with Andrea Kramer, their executive director. Uh, Neighbor to neighbor works uh, with people like refugees who are arriving. And right now, we have families coming from Afghanistan And with the money that we send neighbor to neighbor, they're going to do a better job of showing up for those families who are in a very vulnerable moment in their lives. A side note, too, we were really excited to find out that not only did a bunch of people give to the Christmas offering, uh, but a number of you have reached out to show that you want to be a part of the support groups that will be in relationship with these families and walk together through a long season. So that's fantastic. Uh, We also get to use this money for the Southland Education Foundation to meet future teacher needs in the classroom. And then lastly, uh, we get to support the tell-off scholarships that will go toward the trips that I talked about earlier in our gathering. So uh, well done there. Good job. Thank you all. And Jesus seems to think that the good we do together can be a really powerful witness to the life of God in the world. But he seems to be concerned about the good that we do on our own. Something going on here about Jesus' understanding of the fraught nature of the kind of virtuous things that we do, uh, whether it's generosity or other kind of stuff. Uh, Let's think through this in ways that might put us on a sort of um, perspective that helps us see this a little bit. Uh, The different ways that people can give for all the wrong reasons. Here's a question. Have you ever had somebody do an unsolicited favor for you only to find out later that there were strings attached? Like, you never asked for it, you never required it. Somebody just decided to bestow you with something, and later you find out that they think it put you in their debt, even though you never asked for it? Just me? Am I, am I just working out some of my baggage right now? <laughs> well, if you've been on the receiving end of that kind of dysfunction, you're painfully aware that some of the good that we do, some of the supposed acts of generosity or kindness toward other people can have all kinds of complicated motivations behind them. All right, if that's not an example that you relate to, how about this? See if anybody is tracking with this example. Has anybody been on the campus of the University of Notre Dame? And has anybody ever noticed that none of the buildings are named for what they do? Like you're looking around for the building where the science stuff is or where the whatever is, and all you see is buildings with weird names on them, right? Of course, what what are they named after? donors, right? Yeah. And then you think, oh, that's nice. They have a name in there. And then you walk into the building. And if you are paying attention, usually just inside the front door of these gorgeous buildings, you'll see like an oil painting of the donor family, right? A little plaque to them. And it will strike you. Oh, 
these people didn't build a building for science or for whatever. They built a shrine to their own perpetual glory in the world, right? Their magnanimity, their generosity. Um, by the way, I don't mean to like make fun of that so much as just observe a, a very kind of like potent example of how giving can be tied to our own sort of notoriety in the world. By the way, if you're the kind of person who has means to fund a building, I would love to talk to you afterwards because I don't know if you've heard, <laughs> but we're looking at buying and renovating a building and uh, we'd be happy to put your name on some part of it, frankly. <laughs> and I promise not to make fun of you about it in a sermon later. But you can feel that, right? Here's this very, very public, trumpeted, um, honored act of generosity that may or may not have a lot to do with that person's virtue, or it may or may not have a lot to do with something else. Uh, Maybe those people who write those big checks for those big buildings are just like you and me, and we find ourselves performing lots of acts of public virtue, not out of a deep and abiding goodness so much as a need to be seen in a certain way in the world. Because, I mean, that's just human. Some people have more money to do that with than others, but that's just a human thing, a desire to be seen as a certain way in the world, as a certain kind of person in the world, a desire for the world to report back to us that we are that kind of person so that we can feel that we are okay. And you may not have millions of dollars to put on buildings to perform a certain kind of virtue for the world, but I have discovered that almost all of us have social media and you may not like, be putting your name on a building, but I think social media is one of those other places where we see what might be called performative virtue sometimes, right? Uh, now, this is not me attacking certain kinds of speech on social media because I think it's really important if you have a voice or a platform or influence to think about how to use that. And you might want to use that for virtuous ends. The question isn't what are you doing. The question is why are you doing it? And I think so many of us... Um, are tempted to show up in the world with a certain kind of performative virtue because we are human. And to be human is to be desperate for the world around us to tell us that we are good and that we're okay. Uh, quick side note, if you want to audit some of this, if you just kind of want to think about how you're doing on some of this stuff, we could ask ourselves questions like, is my budget as virtuous as my social media feed? Right? Because everybody sees the things I support with my words on social media. Very few people probably see the way that you spend every dollar, right? But that would be an interesting audit for all of us to ask, like, what's going on? And whether we are more in it for the act of character or whether we are in it for the reputation. Right? Because character is most often the thing that happens when nobody's looking. And reputation is the thing that we sort of play out for the world at large. Uh, Side note, uh, one of the tools that's been made available to us lately to sort of sift through the apparently virtuous ways that we show up in the world and the motivations behind those apparently virtuous ways is the Enneagram. Any, uh, any fans of the Enneagram in the world, in the room? Yeah, fans of the Enneagram. Anybody so annoyed with the Enneagram? Are you just so sick of it right now? Yeah, I see you. Anybody have no idea what I'm talking about? Yeah, cool, right on. So the Enneagram uh, has become this very popularized thing in the last few years. Uh, Its most recent roots include uh, a long history of Jesuit spiritual directors using it privately and helping people grow spiritually. It basically says that there are nine ways of showing up in the world where showing up is a way of sort of defending ourselves and protecting ourselves and projecting ourselves out into the world. 
And the real invitation of the Enneagram, by the way, if, if you're into it a little bit, just please hear me on this. The real invitation of the Enneagram isn't to dismiss other people for the way that they show up. And it's not to justify all of those fixations and biases and projections that you bring into the world. The real gift of the Enneagram is that it names those things so that you can work with God to dismantle them. So that you can slowly learn how to lay down those defenses. Uh, here's an example. I show up as a five with a four wing. Um, fives, like we, we want to be very well informed. I uh, don't know what to do with that. Um, we, we're, we're terrified of being found to be incompetent or ignorant. Uh, we like to sort of live at a distance from demanding experiences and places. And so we kind of use our analysis to sort of sit on the sidelines and keep the book without playing the game. And uh, the thing about like showing up as a five in the world is you can find yourself in spaces that laud you for having lots of knowledge and it can be treated as a virtue. But the people who see it as a virtue may not know that often the reason I'm doing that is to protect myself, right? Now, maybe you're thinking we went from giving to knowledge and that seems strange. But the fact is we all have these different sort of performative virtues, things that we do publicly in the world, ways that we show up in the world. We spend our whole lives fine-tuning these strategies to show up in the world, hoping that the world will respond to us and tell us that we are good because of those things, hoping that the world will make us safe because we show up in those ways. And I don't know any real journey with God that isn't going to require us to learn how to lay down some of that stuff. And so Jesus goes right to the heart of a particular act and says, the way that you give, you, you individually, you, you, you give publicly, you want to show up virtuously for the world to laud you for your generosity. He says, don't do that. Not so much because I think he's saying it's always wrong to have your name attached to a gift, but I think because he knows that the kind of life he is inviting us into is the kind of life that doesn't work if we are always living the sort of quid pro quo, I gave and so I get, I gave and so I am known. He's like, you, you can't live with the infinite generosity of God if you're still playing that kind of quid pro quo, I scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of life. It just doesn't work that way. This is also important for the world that we build because there is that difference between reputation and character, right? And I think as much as ever in the history of the world, we are tempted to live for reputation instead of character. Now, hopefully, like the, the more just the world is, the healthier the world is, the holier the world is, the more alignment there would be between character and reputation. The more it would be the case that doing the right thing leads to being known for doing the right thing. That would be a good world to live in, wouldn't it? But have you noticed we don't live in that world? I mean, sometimes it's the case that doing the right thing leads to a good reputation, but sometimes it's the case that it doesn't. And I think that's one of those moments where we find out when confronted with a choice between doing the right thing versus doing the thing that will make you known in the right kinds of ways. When there's a fork in the road between those two paths, we find out just how attached we are to the world around us telling us that we are good and to living in a kind of quid pro quo, I scratch your back, you're scratch my back kind of way, rather than trusting that there's something deeper and truer than that um, back and forth sort of boomeranging understanding of life in the world that I... I I put this thing out into the world and I expect it back. And Jesus seems to be saying, like, you can't live with that if you're going to live in the economy of God's unending grace. Uh, he has a peculiar phrase in the teaching where he talks about the right hand and the left hand not knowing what one or the other is doing. Well, that's kind of interesting. I think most of us think that it would be pretty hard to, like, do something with one hand that the body doesn't know is happening, right? Except... Have you ever made it from your house to work, driving your car, and had no recollection of how you got there? <laughs> Have you ever made it from your house to your school, your kid's school, and had no recollection of how you got there? 
Yeah, for like minutes or perhaps hours, your hands are doing something and you don't even register it. Why? Because you've practiced over and over and over again. And the, the mechanics of driving a car and taking it down those roads have become second nature to you. Like they've become part of your nature. They, they've gotten woven into your life through repetitious practice. And this is the way that I think we can like really clearly and directly get our hands on what Jesus is telling us and do something with it. We can practice it. So here's a challenge that I want to put in front of the community this week. This is just a basic, concrete, simple, powerful practice that I'm asking all of us to jump into. It's simply this. Give something anonymously this week. Like quite literally, give something anonymously this week. Let me walk you through it a little bit further. Think about a person or a group or a cause, or an organization that you would like to give to. person could be a friend or a family member, somebody really close in your life. could be like a neighbor, maybe somebody that you don't actually have a lot of relationship with, but you sort of bump into each other in the space that you share and you're aware of each other. could be a neighbor. Um, could, be, uh, could be a stranger, but somebody like you know are out there at work or something like that. could be an enemy. Uh-oh. could be somebody where there's been like a long-standing grudge. And like the hardest thing in the world would be for you to just anonymously do something to bless them. But it could be a person. Uh, it could be a group, you know, a group of people. It could be a family that you know. Um, just think of all kinds of groups. It could be a cause that you really care about, something that matters in the world. It could be an organization that you, that you care about. And then the means of the gift, it could be financial. That's the place our brain tends to go quickly. But it doesn't have to be. There are other ways to be generous, right? You could give a, a gift of actual cash resources. could give a gift card. You could give your words, I bet any of us could quickly think of several people we know of that could use the blessing of generous words to just like find an anonymous envelope in their mailbox or uh, at their desk where you tell them the things that you see in them that are beautiful that they haven't heard about in a very long time. That's not hard to imagine, right? That there's somebody in your life that could benefit from that kind of generosity, right? Could be influence. What if you used your influence or power in the world on behalf of somebody else and you did it in a way that they would never find out you were the one who gave your influence, your power on behalf of somebody else, but you did it, right? Uh, so it could be money, but it could be other things. And then here's the other big thing about all this. Just be really present to the practice. Um, I know like when I lift weights, which some of you are looking at me like, you lift weights? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's slow for me. Um, but when I go to the gym and do like a weightlifting workout, I've learned over the years that you could do the exact same motions in two different ways. One is mindlessly, where you don't sort of focus on the body movement. And there's lots of problems with this. One is when you don't actually focus on where you're trying to build strength, you actually get less benefit from the lift. Two, you can actually hurt yourself when you lift mindlessly. That's where injuries come from. You can lift, you can lift mindfully which is like you're really like present with your body and you're present with where you're trying to like strengthen yourself. And you actually get a better lift out of it and you grow more from it. And you also have less risk of injury. And I think all that applies to a good practice like this. So my proposal is not just that we find a way to give anonymously this week, but that we do it with an act of, of presence or consciousness in the whole thing. So here's what I'm suggesting on that level. Like take a minute, like sit quietly for 15 minutes maybe and try to figure out who or what you want to give to and, like, maybe drop down out of the head and into the heart. Like, I'm not asking you to overthink it. I'm just asking you to, like, get quiet enough and present enough with yourself and with God. Maybe pray about it a bit. And just figure out where, where, do, you, where, where do you want to give right now? Who do you want to give to? Where does your heart notice something in the world that's longing for a blessing 
for a good thing from you, right? So take a little bit of time to like be, be present with the question of where you want to give. And then in the act of giving, and especially in the feelings that you have upon the act of giving, pay attention. Uh, I know for me, journaling is the best way I can think of to like really pay attention to like what I'm experiencing and going through. Maybe you'll do a little journaling and, and just kind of think about what does it feel like to give knowing that like there's no way for that to kind of boomerang back to you. Right? There's no way that this can be used to manipulate a relationship. There's no way that this is me pulling a lever to try to make something happen between me and them. There's no way that this is something that's going to like somehow um, make me look better in the world. By the way, some of you are going to have to discover there's a thing called cash, like actual paper currency, because it's really hard to give anonymously through Venmo. Or there's probably a way to give anonymously through crypto that I don't understand yet. But like... Like, you're going to have to get creative about it, perhaps. But, like, like pay attention then to what does it feel like to, to pull yourself out of the equations that we create. Where, like, I give to you knowing somewhere inside that hopefully you'll think differently of me or it'll do something between us or I'll look better for it. If you just opt out of that entire equation and, like, just see what happens. Now, um, a while ago, I had the experience of being on the receiving end of an anonymous gift. I'll explain. I was uh, working at another church at the time. And uh, I didn't have an office in the building during this season. However, I still had all my packages delivered to the church office because uh, I had one of those house fronts, one of those porches that was like a staging ground for porch pirates. Do you know what I mean? It was like my, my, the front of my house was very visible to like a major road and there's no place to hide packages and the way the steps were built, it literally was like, look everyone, here's a package to take, right? So I couldn't have packages delivered to my house. So I'd have them delivered to the church office. And one day, working at home, I get a text message from my friend Amanda, who is on our staff team here now. And Amanda says, um, hey, you have a package in the mail room. And without thinking at first, I'm like, okay, cool. Because I don't know about you, but I order a lot of stuff from Amazon. Like a lot. So much so that I forget. I delightfully surprise myself with the things that I bought for myself when I open the package, you know. And so I go all the way to the church office and I walk into the mail room and I see a package there with my name on it that's far too big for a book. And then I think, that's interesting. I open my Amazon app, and I realize I don't have any outstanding orders. And I open this box with fear and trembling, because, you know, like anthrax and stuff, so I don't know what's going to happen. But I open the box, and this is what I find. Oh! Is that underwhelming for some of you? You spent the last, like, 40 minutes of the gathering wondering what's under the cloth. This, my friends, is a Barazza Virtuoso Burr Grinder for Coffee. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, my mom's really excited. Um, so uh, here's the deal. I'm like, I'm a coffee fiend. I'm, I'm a snob. I'm one of those jerks that's the reason you have to pay $6 for a cup of black coffee these days because I, like, I'm willing to and I get excited about it. And at home, I like making my coffee in a kind of ritualistic way. So I got the ceramic Hario V60 pour-over cup with the glass pitcher underneath it. And I make one cup at a time with my hand behind my back and I meditate, right? Like... <laughs> This is how I like to make my coffee. And years ago, I'm at my house, and I have a burr grinder. Not this burr grinder, but a burr grinder that I think I'd also gotten for Christmas. And it was a good burr grinder. It wasn't a great burr grinder, but it was a burr grinder. And burr grinders are better than blade grinders. And I was using my burr grinder when my burr grinder stopped working. And the, the problem was, like, when it stopped working, I knew this Barazza Virtuoso is the burr grinder I have always wanted. This is like the creme de la creme. This is the Cadillac. So much so that when my old burr grinder broke, I knew not only could I not afford this burr grinder, but I wasn't sure it would be uh, appropriate for me to spend the kind of money that it takes to get this burr grinder on a burr grinder in that season in my life. And so rather than buy another burr grinder that would only be somewhat satisfactory, I thought, you know what? I'm going to wait until a season in my future when my book sells a million copies, and I'm going to buy myself the Barazza Virtuoso Burr Grinder, and it's going to be heaven. 
And I reached back into the cabinet to the dark recesses of my old kitchen cabinet, and I pulled out a blade grinder, and I suffered through months of blade ground coffee beans. And then one day I walk into the church office, and I open a box, and anonymously, somebody has purchased me the Baratza Virtuoso Coffee Grinder. To this day, I have no idea who did this. I have done everything I can to manipulate Amanda into telling me who got this for me, and she has held steadfast. I did write a letter and gave it to her. It said, if you know who gave it, could you pass this on to them? But I very distinctly remember the moment when I received this, and I'll tell you what it's done since. The moment when I received this, I was uh, stupefied and dumbfounded. Not just like wondering who did this, but frustrated that I couldn't repay the favor. And in that moment, I felt the, the operating system of being human, which is we are just hardwired for quid pro quo. I have to, like, make it even. I have to justify myself in the face of this gift. I have to make sure this person knows that I'm grateful. I have to, like, pay it back because that's just the operating system of these reptilian brains of ours who are so afraid that we are unsafe in the world and think that the way that we will make ourselves safe is to even the score, Right? But I couldn't. There was no way to do that. I was just sort of confounded in this moment. And this is what grace always does. True grace, which is, which is unmerited generosity, which is just, just the gift given because the giver wants to give it, that's grace. That's what grace always does to us. It disrupts us. It, it sort of like fries the operating system in the human heart and mind because We so badly want the equation to work, and then a gift of grace comes along, and we can't do the equation anymore. Uh, Because it turns out that when you are working with, like, God, there is a variable in the equation that you cannot solve for because it is infinite, and you can't solve equations with infinity in them. And there's an, an infinity to the endless giving of God that is the truest thing about ultimate reality. And all of these little games that we play and these equations that we try to solve and the kind of quid pro quo, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, I show up virtuous in the world so that I know that I'm going to be okay in the world. All of these games are being played on top of a deeper field that doesn't play that game. Because like Jesus has been saying from the beginning of Matthew 5, God is just going to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. That there's, there's uh, an infinite generosity at the heart of all things, of God just giving And to be on the receiving end of an anonymous gift, it kind of like interrupted that boomerang cycle that we all try to play, that game that we try to play where we pay it back. And here's the thing that's happened since. Uh, So uh, almost every day, you know, I'm at home and I'll make my first cup of coffee. And I don't know what mode you're in when you make your first cup of coffee of the day. I know for me, most days I find myself at the counter uh, making my pour over, feeling a combination of ambition and excitement and anxiety and foreboding fear about all the things that I don't know how I'm going to get done today, about all the projects that are too big for me to figure out how to tackle on my own. You just kind of feel this anxiety about the day ahead. And then every darn day, I have to make my coffee with this gift that kind of stares me in the eye and reminds me of a deeper thing that I actually believe about the universe that we live in, which is that underneath everything, it's all grace. It's all gift. And little by little, I feel like even just like you know, making my coffee in the mornings, I continue to have that operating system dismantled and something better is being replaced. And it's the operating system of the Beatitudes. It's the operating system Jesus is working on and it's the one that he's inviting us into. I don't think that Jesus teaches us to give anonymously primarily for the effect on the person who receives it, although it's pretty cool to be on on the receiving end and see what it did to me. I mean, I think he's primarily teaching it to all of us because he cares so much that we 
like learn how to live outside the performative virtues that we put on in the world to make sure the world can tell us that we are okay and like trust something deeper that doesn't need the world to tell us that we are okay to know that we are with God and that God wants to give God's life to us and live God's life through us. Uh, One addendum, Uh, we'll invite you into baptism on Easter this year. And this is for anybody who wants to say yes to the very promise that Jesus has been making throughout the Beatitudes and throughout the Sermon on the Mount and the the life that the Gospels keep speaking of and, and pointing us toward, which is that God wants to give God's life to you. And it doesn't matter who you are or what's happened to you or where you've come from or what you've done. Um, it doesn't matter uh, what kind of forgiveness you need or the ways that you've rejected it. It doesn't matter if you feel like you don't have enough to earn it. Uh, baptism is just for people who want to like die to the world of quid pro quo and earning it and getting the world to tell you that you're going to be okay and be raised up in a completely different kind of life that we keep learning together week after week and month after month with Jesus and one another. And I think that's actually all um, contained within this beautiful, simple teaching to give anonymously. And so I can't wait. Uh, here's, here's the only thing that stinks. The very nature of giving anonymously is we can't do an open floor next week and ask you how it went, right? Because that would totally spoil it, Right? So we're just going to have to, like, treasure it in our hearts and carry it um, ourselves and trust that maybe without speaking it, it will shift something in the room for us as we become the kind of people who take this up. Sound good? Cool. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? A reminder, if you want to learn more about the American South pilgrimage, head up to the mezzanine right after the gathering, and we'd love to talk with you more about that. Uh, That being said. May you hear Jesus over and over and over again promising that God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. And may you discover that this life is not predicated on anything that you can earn or do. May we be the ones who give in secret, trusting that grace is the real operating system that we are living in. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.